Hello, 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 everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to acquire, manage, and build a B2B SaaS portfolio. Today, we have our guest, Kevin Peterson, joining us. Kevin is a mar- marketing automation specialist with over 20 years of experience working with companies like Charles Schwab and Wells Fargo. And he also had founder shares in a public company on assignment. Peter's SaaS experience includes growing a file sharing platform to seven figures in revenue in its first year, which was an award-winning music industry startup. He also runs several portfolio brands and companies that have realized over 50% year-over-year growth since the acquisition, which he now manages in his portfolio and investment firm, GrowthStack. So welcome, Kevin. Super excited to have you on our show today. Thank you, Akhil. Good to be here. Awesome. So, you know, we've had a, a couple of conversations before. We've known each other for, for a little bit. Um, but for those in our audience who aren't familiar, what's your personal background? What's been your past ventures? And what was the motivating decision for you to start your investment firm, GrowthStack, where you focus on acquiring and growing B2B SaaS companies? Sure. Yeah. So I'll start at the very beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, I was actually born in the Silicon Valley before it was called the Silicon Valley. I don't want to date myself too much, but, uh, um, yeah, I grew up in San Jose and just like, I don't know, two miles from where Apple had, you know, Apple was headquartered and founded. And, um, you know, I'm, I just have entrepreneurship in my blood. Um, always have, I am one of those people that had, uh, you know, popcorn and lemonade stand when I was a kid. So mm-hmm. Um, it's just always, it's always been, you know, kind of innovative spirit has always been in, uh, a part of me. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, uh, early in my career, I was actually uh, studying music and I was uh, working in the music industry for a number of years. And my day job was marketing. I was, I was also going to school for marketing and, and, uh, and I fell into a pre-IPO startup in the staffing industry. It mentioned on assignment and, uh, I was marketing director there for, you know, eight years and we did take it public. Um, during the time that I was there, we grew revenue from 7 million to 63 million. Um, public offering was very, very, uh, very successful. It's still trading today. Um, ticker is ASGN is, has about a three and a half billion dollar market cap operating in 26 countries. Um, so yeah, so that's how my career started. And then from there, I, I had to make a tough decision uh, when I left there about, you know, do, do I go out and get another, you know, quote unquote marketing job? Um, or do I, you know, I, you know I, I learned so much from that experience. I learned all facets of marketing. So it was everything. It was, you know, trade show management and call center management and um, direct marketing and uh, print advertising. It was all of it. Um, so, you know, I didn't really want to go out and get a quote unquote marketing job and get pigeonholed into, you know, a single role where a company labels me like, Hey, you're the, you're the, like, you're the email guy. Right. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) So I thought, you know, I've, I've built such a, such a broad base of skills and experience that, um, I really just wanted to venture out on my own. So I started uh, consulting and I started a, a marketing agency, um, and, uh, you know, and that's, that's kind of how my career began. And then at one point, um, you know, I sort of discovered that there was a thriving secondary market for online businesses. Mm-hmm. That was about seven years ago. And, um, I would say today, generally speaking, 
most people don't are still totally not aware of that dynamic, right? Right, right. Um, and a lot of people today, uh, including my own family member, I always joke this with people that family members don't have a very clear understanding of what I actually do for a living. <laughs> yeah, I still can't explain to my mom either. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> what I've discovered is that the easiest way to describe it is uh, if you look at companies like Apple and Google and Facebook and so on and Amazon, you know, when they make acquisition in the news, like if Apple goes out and buys Beats and spends a billion dollars Beats, people know about it. It's in the headlines. People are excited about it. I don't know why they're excited about it. If they don't have any stake in Beats, they don't own Apple stock, <laughs> why do they care? I don't know. Right. <laughs> That's but a good point. They're excited. People are excited to hear about merger activity and acquisition activity. Um, so the way I describe growth now is, uh, and, and I do for a living now is, you know, it's just, we're doing this thing. It's a similar dynamic as Apple and Beats. The difference is if I go out and spend, you know, a million dollars or $5 million on a company, nobody cares, right? It's not in the That's news. <laughs> not buying household names. You know, we're not chasing unicorns. You know, we're just buying cash flowing businesses and, you know, negotiating the best deal can at acquisition and, um, and, and building a portfolio of these cash flowing businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'll share with you just a little more about growth stack and then, uh, then I'll pause. But, um, it was seven years ago when I discovered that again, there was this thriving secondary market, my businesses changed hands. I was super excited about that dynamic, that opportunity and, and also how I could apply my skills and experience in sales and marketing to acquire and grow these businesses. So uh, I would say the first year I was kind of off the rails, right? I was I was buying anything. <laughs> I was just so excited. It's like uh, you know, like first business that I bought on the secondary market. I actually bought it off of Flippa, and it was a tattoo blog. And I don't have tattoos, but um, I liked it, and I liked the model. And what I liked about it was that it was selling for nine hundred dollars on Flippa. And it was making three hundred dollars a month in wow. uh, just AdSense income, right. and I'm like, well, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? I get my money back in three months, so I paid nine hundred for it. I paid a developer three hundred dollars to make some improvements, and within ninety days, I had it up to seven hundred fifty dollars a month in revenue. No, so man. a business that I had invested twelve hundred dollars in was making seven hundred fifty dollars a month, and I was like. This is awesome. Right? <laughs> right. And if I can do that with one, I can do it with 10. And if I can do it with a $1,200, $1,200 investment, you know, what if I add a zero or two zeros or three zeros, right? So exactly. that's how it started. And then really for the last seven years, I've just been stair-stepping the business. And, um, and then at one point I did start inviting investors to participate so that, you know, we acquire and manage and uh, the investors participate in, uh, you know, in the games. So very cool. And then that, that first kind of, uh, you know, company you work with, the publicly traded company, you still own shares in that company, or did you cash out and, and use that? No, a, no, a I, did. no I cashed out a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> um, yeah, that would have been interesting to hold on to, but uh, you know, and I was, you know, I was a nerdy kid. I started investing in the stock market when I was nine. 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, looking back, there are companies that if I had held some shares, you know, for the last, I don't know, I'd date myself too much, you know, last 40 years, right? <laughs> right, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I still regret selling my Tesla stocks a few years ago. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Cool. So now you guys have, what, I think, a total of almost five companies in your portfolio, right, within GrowStack. Um, exactly. You know, five now, yeah. So I think most interesting for people is like looking back at, I, for me even, I always love to do lookbacks um, from the deals you've done. What would you say, you don't have to say the actual name, but maybe just kind of high level. What would you say has been like, you know, both best acquisition, both from a financial and personal gain and why? And I'm saying personal gain because sometimes they are profitable, but they're just so, you know, tiring and, and time consuming that I don't mm. think it, it was even worth the, the high ROI, right? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, um, there's a couple of things about that. So uh, just because of my marketing background, I have been gravitating toward ad tech and, and marketing tech, you know, MarTech yeah. platforms. Mm -hmm. So of the five businesses that we're operating today in our portfolio, four of them are ad tech, MarTech. Right. Mm, mm. So um, that wasn't really necessarily by design. And, you know, I do want to diversify our portfolio over time. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, as I was building, it just it was very easy for me to assess, you know, value and trajectory on these on these ad tech businesses, because, you know, I have that I have that background to draw from. So I was able to look at it and say it's almost like the Warren Buffett quote, right? Like buy what you know. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And so that's kind of what I was doing. I was like, well, you know, like I can look at an ad tech business and in, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, I can say, yeah, it makes sense. I can see why people would buy that service. Mm -hmm. um, or no, I don't really get it. And I'm, let's move on. Right. So, right. So, uh, the businesses that we've purchased, um, like I, I don't really, there's such a close fit to my, my, uh, like knowledge, my personal knowledge base that I don't feel like, um, they were that challenging to understand or operate. Um, I think the challenges more are on, um, just scaling, right? So in order for me to run a portfolio of SaaS businesses and, and just, just, you know, for your audience, uh, we're hundred percent B2B SaaS at this point. So, right. you know, or like I mentioned, we, you know, early on, I bought a tattoo blog, I bought content sites and e-commerce. I was dabbling in everything. It's Amazon FBA, Amazon affiliates. Um, I was trying a lot of different models. Yeah. And, uh, and what I found was that for me personally, um, based on my background, again, um, mm -hmm. like B2B SaaS is where it's at. It's the yeah. only place where I feel comfortable placing investor capital. Yeah. And it's partly because of my background, but it's also partly because of the SaaS model where you've got recurring monthly revenue. Um, there's some stickiness, there's some pain of switching for the customers. Right. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, you, you've got runway, right? So you've, and that, and that's really what this comes down to for me, um, in building a SaaS portfolio is that, you know, I built infrastructure to support these businesses and it's all about, you know, SaaS affords you runway to look at changes in the marketplace, look at changes in technology, um, look at the changes in the competitive landscape. You know, is a new competitor coming on board? Is somebody falling off? Are they offering something different than you are? Um, and all of those factors, you know, with SaaS, you have time to react to those changes. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got, like, in SaaS, you don't typically see SaaS businesses going from, 
you know, where they are to zero overnight. Right? Exactly. That's right. Yeah. And in e-commerce, quite frankly, e-commerce and content sites, that can happen. I mean, a Google penalty or a, or a change in Facebook policy and all of a sudden your revenue, like, you know, 75% of your revenue can be gone overnight. Exactly. I guess a good option with SaaS too, if you're sales driven and, you know, a client kind of makes up a lot of your revenue, but at the same time, you could make it up pretty quickly if you're, if you have a good sales process in place, right. And to win that back. Whereas like you said, with, yeah, with a Google co- content site, you can't do anything right here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then that's, then that's actually a good point you bring up. Like we really, like I shy away from, um, businesses, you know, acquiring SaaS businesses that have, um, high concentration of, you know, a few clients making up 80% of the revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just too risky. For so sure. we look for, you know, proven models that have a broad customer base again, so that even if you like your top three customers disappear, you're still fine. You can, mm-hmm. you can make it up. Mm. So. Okay. And then, um, you know, I think part of due diligence is probably like a critical part, right? I think, Sometimes you get through due diligence and you maybe you get so far into it. And I think you, sometimes people feel there's like a, if you don't continue, there's like a reputation risk, right? Because you've done all this work and people are now, the, the seller is depending on you and people you yeah. know, will, won't pull out, they won't pull the plug on the deal, right? After a certain point, yeah. um, e- even though the deal, you know, has that uncertain potential or they have good metrics, there's just that risk. Looking back yes. now, right, can you share any failures you've had that past transactions that what would you have done differently maybe during due diligence that, that would have been helpful for, for you? Sure. So, um, I mean, our due diligence process is pretty good. You know, I'd give my, my organization, you know, a good solid B plus A minus. You know, we don't always find everything, but we're pretty good. And we do, uh, we do also rely on, I'll, I'll give a, a plug for um, a company called Centurica does third-party data verification, data verification or validation. Um, mm-hmm. So they'll do screen sessions with a seller to look at um, financials and uh, Google Analytics. And I mean, like you know, you can get you can get access to some of those things during due diligence. But it's nice to have a third party that actually does their own. You know, they have their own process and they do their own validation. So For sure. I feel like between the work that my team does, and we do have a due diligence checklist that we follow on every you know, on every potential acquisition. Um, you know, so we'll go through our due diligence and then when it gets to a point where the deal looks real or solid, then I do uh, bring in Centurica to do another um, pass at the business. Mm. Um, just so I feel like, you know, uh, you know, the, the best case scenario is they come back to me and say, that, you know, they where we don't find anything new. They don't find anything new that we didn't already find, right? Mm. Um, but, but the value that they provide is... Uh, is sort of peace of mind that if they find a red flag that we didn't find, then it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. So there's something we missed. I'm glad that we paid them to do this. For and sure. now we yeah. know, right. Um, yeah. but you make a really good point. I think, uh, and I got a couple of thoughts about, about what you're saying about, you know, companies or acquirers, um, not backing out once they get to, they, they, they sort of hit a point of no return on the deal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, it is very easy for all of us as entrepreneurs to get shiny penny syndrome and you start down a path, you're like, wow, this is the best business I've ever seen. Right? Exactly. And you get like 60 or 70% into diligence and you may see some red flags. It is hard to turn that off. It is hard to say, Hey, um, you know, we, we should be walking away from this. 
and and then actually do it. Um, so, you know, a couple of things I'll share. What I've seen is that um, it's taken time for me to learn this, that, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I, what, I've, what I've recognized now over the past seven years is a lot of times there's a deal that we see that looks like the right deal, but wrong time. And I'm like, oh man, you know, like we're in diligence on this other thing. So I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't want to chase that. Well, we're already, we already have something in pipeline. So we're just going to pass. Right. 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 And I feel bad. Like emotionally, I feel like, oh man, like maybe we're missing out on a good opportunity or maybe the one that I'm passing on is better than the one that we're looking at. Right. The FOMO. Yeah. Um, but what I've seen over the years now, like now I have enough experience to be able to say confidently that there's always another deal. And that deal that I pass on might come back. Like what I've seen is that it's not uncommon uh, actually more deals fall through than, than close really. That's true. Yeah. Right. So now I don't feel so bad if I pass on something because I can't tell you how many times I've seen those deals come back, you know, eight weeks later, 12 weeks later where the broker or the, whoever's representing that deal is reaching out to me again saying, Hey, we had a buyer, buyer fell through. So interesting. Um, yeah. are you interested? You want to take right. another look? Right. right. So um, but the other thing I'll share with you is, you know, for a growth stack, we have an acquisition acquisition scoring model that we use. Mm. And I do recommend this to any buyer. Um, and it doesn't have to be complex. It can be, you know, you can have as few as like, you know, five or six criteria that, you know, you've just identified as these are my core criteria and this is how I weight the criteria, right? Like this, right. this one attribute had, I, I give a score of 10 and this other attribute, I give a score of five because this mm-hmm. one is, it's important, but it's not as important as, you know, the other one. So, yeah. you know, set up your own scoring model so that you can apply some, um, objectivity to the deal and yeah. kind of take, take the emotion out of it a little bit. Yeah. Um, what it's done for me and my team is, uh, it's not uncommon for us to get excited about a deal that once we put it through our own scoring model, we'll see that yeah. the deal that we're really excited about is actually scoring lower than a deal that we passed on. So right. that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it, but it's it, what, what a scoring model will do for you as a buyer is it gives you a point to reflect, to step back and say, oh, wow, like I, I love this deal. Like emotionally, I love the deal. It's not scoring that high in my own model. Like I built the model, right? And for some reason, it's not scoring as high. So the question becomes, it gives you that point of reflection where you say, okay, why am I excited about this? Why does this matter? Why are we pursuing it? If, you know, and there, and there could be very good reasons to still do the deal, but mm. at least you have that checkpoint, you know, to kind of put, put up, you know, put yourself in front of the mirror and say, is this really right? <laughs> right? And if it's not, it's not, you know, there's no, yeah. like, you know, you were alluding to, there's no harm in passing on a, on a deal. That's right. So I think if you, if you summarize both those kind of things you mentioned, I think that goes back to like really just taking the emotion out of the decision, right? Because you said yeah. like, yes, there's this really good deal. You see the opportunity, you feel you're, you can make a lot of money. You might lose out on it, but you have to be objective. Like take the emotion out of it. It's like, okay, look, this is not the right time. I, I have to yeah. be able to say no. And then the second part to that is, okay, I love this deal. I see opportunity. I see the upside, but objectively, these numbers are telling me this is not, yes. <laughs> this is something is not right here. So let's just take right. the emotion out and let me, let me pass on this deal. Right. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a exactly. Good point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, you know, the metaphor is the real estate market, right? So, uh, mm. you know, I, I have a, 
colleague who loves to say, there's always another view home. (laughs) It's just, you know, if you're investing in real estate, there's always, you always, you know, when you start looking at a property that you think Mm -hmm. matches your criteria, it's easy to get really excited about it and just be like, yeah, this is what you want. (laughs) But, um, you know, if, uh, and, and actually I'll share with you too. So, uh, the way we manage, um, we actually use our, our scoring model a little bit to manage risk and, and offer and terms. Okay. So in that example, and this would be true in real estate as well, right? So if you, if there's something that um, you're excited about, but it's not quite, it's not a perfect match for your criteria. If once you recognize that, then you can say, well, okay, so we still like the deal. We still want to do it, but we're not Mm going to chase it. So we're going to put what we believe is a good offer for that thing. Like we may change our, we may offer a little bit less than what the seller is expecting or wants or, or um, we may change the terms a little bit to, to mitigate risk a little bit. And if, if they reject it, they reject it. Yeah. And we're on to the next one. So, uh, so that's the other value of having, you know, at least some written criteria for what, you know, what you want to invest in. Makes sense. And, you know, before an acquisition takes place, you know, like you said, timing is a big thing. And then there's also like the reason and motivation for the acquisition. In your opinion, when is the perfect stage and position when either from a seller perspective, when is a good time for them to sell? And then also from your side, when's the right, you know, uh, risk and return for the right opportunity while still paying that fair valuation from your side? Yeah, so that's a, um, that's an interesting question. I'll, I'll take a stab at, um, you know, sharing the seller side of it. Okay. Uh, but the seller side of it is not as uh, clear in my mind to me as, as the buy side. But on the seller side, what I've seen is that um, I can tell you when sellers do take business to market. Um, and a lot of times it might be, you know, a little bit late, right? <laughs> sellers probably should take their If their intention is not to run the business for 10 years, mm-hmm. then um, they should have a pretty clear understanding of, of um, the right time to sell and, and feel compelled to sell sooner than they probably thought they should. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason is what I mostly see on the buy side is that uh, the sellers, especially with SaaS, I think this is more true with SaaS than, than with other online models. Yeah. With SaaS, a lot of the, a lot of the sellers are, you know, founder, operator, developers, right? They're, mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. coders, whether they coded that site themselves or not. Right. They're coders and they recognize the need in the marketplace. They took it to market. They went through proof of concept. They built a customer base. And what happens is typically they get it to a certain point and realize that they can't scale it, that they just mm. have, they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the experience. And quite frankly, they don't want to. Right. 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 What I mean by that is like most founders do not dream of building a sales team and managing a bunch of sales. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And they don't dream of building marketing funnels and drip campaigns. <laughs> they want to they want to build a shiny new thing, take it to market, and feel like, yes, I did it. Like I thought this would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. I built it. People started buying it. It's awesome. And the time for them to sell is before that business plateaus. Right. So at some point they're gonna hit the ceiling on their own personal experience and expertise. And the, the, you know, the growth curve is going to flatten. 
And so um, it's really hard. I think it's really hard for founders to recognize um, where on the, on the hockey stick is the right time to get out. But typically mm. they wait too long. They wait until it's plateaued and maybe even on, this, on a slight decline right. instead of when it's on uh, going full bore. Yeah, upside. Exactly. And, and that's why they can get more, the higher valuation, right? Than demand and probably exactly. more interest as well. Yeah. Exactly. So I guess, yeah. I guess it's for good from your end, right? Like for you, you look at that, you're like, okay, perfect. They've kind of, now you get a better deal maybe and uh, yeah. slightly better valuation and you can probably turn it around, right? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, and that's, that's exactly what our model is. Our model is to find those scenarios, those businesses, and then apply our infrastructure. So we right. have, you know, skills, experience, and infrastructure to, mm-hmm. um, you know, accelerate growth again, or jump. And what, like would, kind of, what would you say? What would you say yeah, is one like if you if you're looking at a potential acquisition, what's like one factor or element that you said that get, gets you just super excited about opportunity? Is it growth percentage? Is it the market share? I know you have like a couple of factors, but if you would pick yeah. one, what would you what would you say it is? Yeah, so I'll preface that by saying I'm probably a little biased because of my marketing background, uh-huh. but. It, uh, most of the time it is, it is the marketing opportunity. So, mm. and what I mean by that is I can't tell you how many times I met with the seller and they're all excited about the product and, you know, they built this amazing widget right? Right. <laughs> and they took it to market and customers are paying, the customers are happy. And then when I ask about their marketing funnels, I'm like, okay, so tell me like, well, how big is your audience? Like, do you, have, you know, I'm assuming you have an email list, a CRM, are you doing any text marketing? Like, what are you, what are you doing on the marketing side? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we got a hundred thousand contacts that are double opt-in on our email list. And then when I say, okay, well, how many times did you email them last year? They're like, uh, I think last year was two, it was two or three. <laughs> last year, last year was definitely, we emailed them three times last year. <laughs> Right. And I'm like, okay, so to me, I get excited about that because I'm like, okay, so they like the hardest thing to do with an online business for anybody in any model, the hardest thing to do is to build an audience. Mm. And if you have an audience that you haven't monetized, that's an opportunity. Right. So more often than than not, that's, that's what I look for. Like for Mm. me, it's risky to go to a business that has 10 clients, you know, they're doing a certain amount of revenue and it's mostly from 10 customers that could exactly. leave any time and, um, and they have, you know, a couple hundred contacts in a CRM somewhere. Okay. That's risk. Exactly. Um, less risky is uh, a business that has, you know, a hundred thousand plus contacts in their audience. Um, and they just haven't monetized. It. They've never thought about it. They're so focused on the widget making, you know, the perfect widget that, uh, that they're ignoring. They're basically ignoring their, their audience. Exactly. So. They just focus on, on the product and that's a perfect opportunity for you guys. Yeah. What, what would yeah, you say exactly. is the you know top three main ingredients? So that's from your side, but to get other investors, if somebody's looking to raise capital from other investors to get them on board, to trust you in acquiring it, what are top you know three things you go to them and say, uh, you know, get them excited about the deal? Yeah. So one is just, uh, I, you know, getting back to having a clear investing thesis or, or um, acquisition model. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to be able to articulate what you're going, you know, what kinds of deals you're looking for and why. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, it's like uh, there's the famous uh, YouTube video about start with why mm-hmm. um, that apply, it really does apply to pretty much everything in business. Right. Sure. So you need to be able to convey the why to to your investors. You know, why are you why are you doing it at all? Right. And why mm-hmm. are you looking for that type of business? How does it match your skill set or? Or why do you think there's a growth opportunity there or whatever it is, right? 
Um, so there's that piece. And then, uh, you know, um, you know, certainly diligence and trust and so forth is a, is a key component. Um, we've talked about that a little bit already. And then, uh, I think the third thing is just vision. Mm. Um, so, and what, and I'll try to try to articulate that a little bit with some, some real world examples. I went in and this isn't the only time it happened, but I went into one, um, seller meeting. It was a, an in-person meeting, um, with a founder CEO, uh, VC backed company. And it was a, it was a really compelling deal. It was like a really good brand that was going to market. I'm not going to name it, but it was a really good brand that was going to market. Okay. And like a lot of, uh, a lot of developers would recognize the brand. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, it had enough, that deal had enough attention between, you know, the brand recognition and the VC backing. There were, um, other PEs bidding on that. There were hedge funds bidding on it. Um, and when I walked in and sat down with the CEO, I said, Hey, you know, before we even get started, I just wanted to share like my team last week, we had a couple of brainstorming sessions and we came up with a list of growth initiatives for your brand. And I know that, you, you know, and their brand had stalled, right? Even mm-hmm. though it's VC backed, it had grown to a certain point and then, and then growth stalled. So it was highly profitable, but, but it wasn't growing anymore. I said, okay. so we came up with some growth, growth initiatives. And, um, I said, we came up with a list of 41 things and here are the seven that we would probably do first. And the CEO literally pushed his chair away from the, the table and said, <laughs> you're the only guy that showed up with a vision for growth. You're the only one who's come in and, and shared with me tangible ideas on how you're going to revitalize the brand and the, and the growth. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And so, and to me, that's what, you know, I would challenge any buyer to go through that process. There's really two things that they should think through ahead of a, an acquisition. I'm getting into secret sauce a little bit, but not too much. <laughs> sure. but, um, one is just being able to uh, brainstorm and articulate your vision for growth for that brand. Mm-hmm. And it could be anything. It doesn't have to be complex. Again, you like, you don't need to, to, to come up. You don't have to have that aha moment where you're, you're turning it into a unicorn. Right. 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 It just has to, it can be table stakes. It can be like, Hey, well, you know, they've got this audience and it's it's not monetized. Or if they had a strategic partnership with this other brand, sales would probably jump by 20 or 30%. Right. Or it could be that this business, I mean, I have situations in my own portfolio where I've got one brand that, that before we bought it relied very heavily on affiliate marketing, Mm -hmm. not very much on direct sales. And I've got another brand that has always focused on direct sales and it hasn't really focused on affiliate marketing. So on the Hmm. one, we're adding direct sales and the other, we're adding affiliate marketing. It's like, it's not, it's not that hard, right? Right. You should be able, when you're looking at an acquisition or if you're talking to an investor about a deal that you're aware of, you should be able to articulate like, you know what, like here are the top three things that we're going to focus on first to jumpstart growth. I agree with that. And if they pass the sniff test, um, people will, you know, investors will, will participate. Makes sense. Yeah, they want they want to see growth on their return of the money, and the, if the valuation is right, and they feel high, highly confident in your trust and ability to execute. I think, you know, I think that's yeah, that's exactly uh, right. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So overestimating, you know, the synergies, the growth opportunities, even including myself, I'm, you know, I come in this as an optimist in these deals, but I see that, you know, many times over where you have millions of dollars on the line and you maybe overrate the business on what you think it can, re, you know, where the potential is. Um, but then you're stuck with this business for the entire life cycle, right? Because it's hard to recover or there's just, you know, a lot of issues you're dealing with at that point. Uh, do you have an approach on how you estimate that upside potential, the growth opportunity, or are you doing any tests beforehand, uh, you know, before actually taking on that investment? Yeah. So as much as possible, we do try to model growth, you know, pre-acquisition and, and whenever a seller will allow us to do so, we'll, we will ask to talk to some of their customers. Um, we definitely do look at, uh, I mean, there, you know, I, I think a lot of it does, you know, is part of the due diligence process and there's uh, risk mitigation that happens, you know, before an offer is made, before we get to an LOI. Um, so we, you know, we look at, we ask the seller for uh, all their trouble tickets from like a recent period, like the recent month. Show us all your trouble tickets for last month. Mm -hmm. Or let us, let us read all your customer service chats. Um, there are ways to get some insights. Like the more insights you can get from the customer side or customer perspective, I think, um, I think that helps to reduce risk or surprises post acquisition. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then there are ways to, to mitigate risk during the deal phase where, um, you know, you should at least ask if the seller is interested in retaining some equity. Okay. Um, even if, even if it's not your intention to, to keep them on or to let them keep equity, um, their reaction to that is, is, uh, you know, or can be a pretty good indication of what they think about the business. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Like, yeah, if they're like, oh man, yeah, I'd love to retain 15% because I believe this is an amazing business and, and I just need to sell because of X, Y, and Z and I got this other project or whatever, right? Um, but if they're like, no, like, oh, I don't know, I'm out, man. <laughs> Good luck finding me in Tahiti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that's an indicator. Um, but I think your question really is about like what happens if you actually do buy the business and then you find out that it's a dog, right? You're like, oh man, even though we, even though we had a scoring model and even though we went through due diligence and we checked the boxes and we had a third party, uh, you know, auditor or validator come in and look at the business and uh, we structured the deal just right. It's still not as expected. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, so again, there, I think, you know, I think to your point, there is value in cutting losses. Mm. Um, VCs do this all the time, right? VCs go into every acquisition, assuming that six out of 10 are going to fail, right? <laughs> they're, they're hoping that if they buy 10, you know, six out of 10 are, are going to be horrible three out of 10 are going to be just okay. And one out of 10 is going to pay for the next 20. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. I don't think we're that model, but yeah. Yeah, it's not my model either, right? Yeah. But, uh, but it's okay to have that, it's okay to have that reality check and that lens to say, hey, sure. Uh, let's cut our losses on this one. Like the mm. opportunity, the opportunity cost of keeping it in the portfolio is greater than... Um, you know, 
They're like, trying the next deal, focusing on another deal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Get yeah. it out. You don't have to think about it anymore. Redeploy the capital. Um, lick your wounds and move on. Right. Yeah. It's also something I, I mentioned, right? But like you said, you know, you're working on a, on a thousand dollar deal or a million dollar deal. I mean, you only have so much time in a day. And if one is just underperforming, yeah. like you just, you know, one is growing, you know, 10% month over month and the other one is just declining and you're trying to turn it around. Like, yeah. do you focus on the other one where it's, you get more upside and more, work, you know, time for return on your time? I guess it's, it's, it's hard to take on that loss though, right? I guess at some point where, you know, but I guess if you can, if you can accept it and move on, then you know, that's, that's a strong skill. Yeah, it is. It's, and it's hard. It is hard to juggle that. And I'll yeah. tell you, um, just from my own experience, I'll tell you what has been really hard for me, uh, building a portfolio. Okay. And so my model over the last seven years has been stair-stepping, right? So mm-hmm. like my very first business, like I mentioned, I, I paid, I, you know, I put in $1,200 out of my own pocket. It, it wasn't like super risky and the re- reward was relatively high for, I mean, percentage wise, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was, it was a win. Right. Yeah. Um, but what happens is as you're stair-stepping, the smaller de- deals become less and less interesting because <laughs> for the reason you just said, like the next deal was like, you know, 10,000. And then the next deal was like 60. And then the next deal was like 140. And then yeah. it was, you know, 500. And then it was a million, right? So as you're stair-stepping, the small deals, it's hard for you to put time into them because it's just what you said. Like the tattoo blog is an example, right? Like that business making $700 a month isn't that interesting when you've got a business that's doing, you know, six-figure MRR. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) It's not the same thing, right? Right, right. Um, And if you put put your time into the, the larger asset, and get 10% growth, it's very different from putting your time in a smaller asset and getting 10% growth. Well, the so, playbook is similar, right? I mean, you, you're applying, you know, marketing, whether it's content, yes. it's SEO, or this is Google Ads. So the time to set up that, that kind of infrastructure is, is probably exactly yep. the same, right? And, and you might That's as well right. spend on the so, Yeah, and I tell people that all the time. Like, you know, uh, running a $100,000 business is not 10 times harder than running a $10,000 business. And running a mm. million-dollar business is not 10 times harder than running a $100,000 business. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's true until you get to about the 10 million point and mm-hmm. then, and then there actually is a different dynamic. Right. You know, once you get up over uh, 10 million, I would say an acquisition size, yeah. um, at that point, once you're 10 million and up on acquisition size, then you really start, you're, you're getting into a different, uh, it's starting to look more, uh, traditionally corporate, right? You, you're, you practically need an HR department. At that point, right? right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I know people personally who are blessed enough to have businesses that are multi-million dollar businesses that they're running with a team of like seven people. Wow. But that's that's the exception, not the norm, right? right, right Typically, right. if you get up into that, um, once you get once you break the uh, the into the eight figure range, um, mm-hmm. there are more traditional. There's more traditional structure that has to be applied. Right. But before that level. It's exactly what you said, where um, the same, like it's the same formula for each one. And mm-hmm. so if you can get, you know, like, like we were discussing, if you get, you know, 20% growth on a, you know, $5 million business, that's way more valuable than getting 20% growth on a $1 million business. Exactly. Which is why yeah. we stay stair step in the first place. Yeah, it's, it's a good, good piece of advice. 
Um, and then when it comes to valuation, I want to talk a little bit about that as kind of a, a final point here. Um, you know, sellers, I think they come in, especially they're so attached to their business, right? And they probably overvalue, you know, they come to you with their high expectation of what the right price is. Um, but then when you guys are coming in, you're calculating your valuation, you're assuming upside growth of the company, what the potential is. Mm-hmm. How are you, do you have ways of how to overcome those conversations with sellers to educate them or, you know, come back to yeah. expectation of what the right value is yes. and then um, you know not overpay without you know losing the deal and and, and, and make a deal yes. happen yeah yeah so um, one of the easiest ways that I've seen to kind of bring you know at least get into the same uh, you know, same space as the seller mm-hmm. is to quantify for them what it mean what your investment means right in that business. So what I mean by that is, let's say, and, and actually one of my business partners articulates this really well. So I'm, I'm basically, uh, I'm plagiarizing. I'm using his, his uh, you know, how he, how he um, conducts seller calls. Okay. Um, and it's super valid. And so if a business is selling, let's, I'm just going to make up 5X is a good round number. So like, let's say sure. they're selling a 5X on net income. Mm-hmm. Um that business, you know, the, the seller might want 10x and right. you're not willing to pay 10x and you right. might not really want to pay 5x. But um, the way that you put that in perspective for the seller is to say, hey, seller, if I pay 5x on net income after seller discretionary earnings for your business, what that means is if all things remain equal, it's going to take me five years to get my investment back. Right. And in technology, there are a thousand different things that can change in the next five years. So I need to r- mitigate my risk. And and you can ask. I mean, just ask the seller. Like, does this sound fair? Is it like is what I'm saying making sense? Is it resonating? That you know, I'm taking on the risk of you know, like I'm helping you get cash out of your business that you built, and I'm taking on the risk that all things will remain equal or better over the next five years. And I, you know, best case scenario, I grow the business and I can get my, I can recoup my investment in three years. Right. 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 Or whatever, Mm. whatever the numbers are. But if you put Mm. it in that perspective for the seller, um, it helps them to kind of quantify like, Oh yeah, I can kind of see why the buyer is, is placing the valuation that they're placing. I can kind of see why, like if they don't have a clear path, to 3x or 5x or 10x the business mm. and and as the sellers really on the seller to present that case like here's right. a buyer here's how you can 5x this business right? that's right <laughs> if they yeah. can make that case and it's real then of course it's going to get a higher valuation but typically you're meeting with the sellers who are like yeah I, you know i've got three projects i'm running this one's doing fine, but it's kind of plateaued. I want to take the cash out of this one. I want to invest in this other one and really, you know, jumpstart that project. So they're typically what I'm seeing anyway, is that the sellers are not hard selling me on the super value of the growth. They just mm. want to get as much cash out as they can. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. you know, unless they can present a clear case that says, yeah, uh, I can show you how you're going to get your, your initial investment back in a year and a half. Right. 
then that's true. It's hard yeah. for them to justify the higher valuation. It's you know right. make them justify a ten x or whatever the number is. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Ten x so. is a little extreme, but yeah, you know, you're yeah not, a, not a mystery territory there. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, unless they're growing, you say, look, I'm growing two hundred percent year over year, and you're not going to get it in five years. You're actually going to get it in two years as long as it you know remains the right. same. Then okay, yeah. cool. Maybe we can have that. Yeah, makes makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, Kevin, who, who have been, you know, who or what have been, you know, three resources, mentors or people in your life that you say have been instrumental to your success or help you grow, you know, along the way? Sure. So, um, you know, first, uh, I'm just going to mention the Rhodium Group mm. um, that I know you're familiar with as well. Sure. That's so are, you bit, actually, yeah. are you actually in Rhodium right now? I can't remember. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in, the, in the group. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. very inactive on social media, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so you know, Rhodium, I mean, to me, um, like all the all the connections and resources and advice I've ever needed. I can easily find in that community. Yeah. And it's not it's not a huge community. It just happens to be really, really strong. It is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The the resumes that you see uh, in from the Rhodium members are all very impressive. Yeah. So yeah, it means a lot to me that, um, so I guess that would be, you know, advice for people. Like if you have access to a mastermind, I mean, just to, you know, a little background for people who don't know Rhodium. So it's, it's basically a community of, uh, online entrepreneurs. So think of it as sort of a mastermind. Um, there are mass, there are actual masterminds that run monthly within Rhodium. Um, so for anyone who's, uh, looking to, um, build a portfolio of businesses, you know, if, if you have access to a mastermind, it's a good idea. You can always start one. I mean, reach out yeah. to people that you, uh, that you know and respect and so forth. And, you know, it just means a lot to have people that you know and trust so you can bounce stuff off of um, on, on the plus or the minus, right? I mean, the real exactly. value of that is, is being able to bring a problem to that group and say, hey, like if you, when you have that, you know, Oh, bleep moments. Right? <laughs> exactly. So I have to be able to go to the group and say, Hey, this one thing just happened in my business and I'm not sure how to navigate this. And somebody in the group will either have an answer because they've experienced it firsthand or they know somebody who can help you. And yeah. there's, there's just, a, there's a lot to that. I think the value is in, yeah, unbelievable because the, the experience that's there, right? People have been down that path that, can literally save yeah. you. I think I, I was I won't say this lightly, like millions of dollars. I've I've almost went down a, a deal at some point. I was going pretty deep into it, and I was about to make an offer, and I just I felt I was not hundred percent sure. I went to somebody else who has sure. been down that path, and he just pointed out something so clearly to me that I was like everything just made sense that I, I was I had to pull out of that deal, and I was so grateful for that. Right, and all it took was just one conversation yeah. and his experience that I would have I would never had. Right, so yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Cool. Uh, Kevin, what does, what does success mean to you today? So really for me, uh, I've taken the last seven years to learn and build infrastructure. And so, um, you know, without oversimplifying it, for me, it's just more of the same. Like I just want Mm. to be able to continue to build on, on what we've done so far and, uh, and deliver, you know, it's, it's partly, it's, I guess it's really three prong, right? So one is just, uh, you know, I, 
you know, like anybody, I just want to be successful in business. So it's, there's, it's rewarding. It's personally rewarding and fulfilling to, to build a business and see it grow. And, um, and another is lifestyle. Like it means a lot to me, especially during this crazy, you know, pandemic era, right. Where yeah, like when lockdowns happen and people are like, Oh my God, I'm gonna have to work from home. I was like, ah, I've been doing that for <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not, like I'm actually at my office right now. I'm the only one here. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, the, it means a lot to me that I have businesses that operate 24 hours and I've got resources in, in multiple time zones. And really I can work anytime from anywhere that I've got an internet connection. Exactly. So that the lifestyle piece is pretty, pretty amazing. Nice. Um, and then, and then the other you know, the other pillar would be, uh, just delivering returns for investors. Right. Mm. So, um, I mean, to me, that is also super rewarding is having other people share my success and, Absolutely. you know, just full transparency. Um, you know, like we haven't done everything right over the last seven years, we've had some hits and misses. So there have been mm. some really, sure. you know, I mean, it's the life of the entrepreneur, right? Of Where you get the, good, the good days are really, really good. And the bad days are really, really hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but we've been pretty good so far at, uh, delivering returns and protecting investor assets and, and building on a model. Mm -hmm. Um, our model today is stronger than it's ever been. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the next, the next thing for me is just being able to actually go back to investors and say, Hey, like, uh, I don't know when there's really like a, uh, we've done it moment, (laughs) right? Because that's always changing, (laughs) but you know, just having those times, like, like I sent out a, an investor update two weeks ago that was, I mean, it was just very exciting. I was able to show that, Hey, this business year over year, like it's up X percent. This mm. other business, this is, this is the growth curve. This other thing we, you know, it was, this thing was going bad and now it's not going bad. It's going good. Nice. Right. So being able to, to deliver those kinds of reports and say, wow, like the model the model is coming together and, um, and you will be rewarded for this. And I, you know, to me, on a personal level, it means a lot to me to be able to say to, to investors that, Hey, you know, you're going to, you're, you're actually, uh, participating in the, in the upside, just like we said. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You get to deliver what you said. Yeah. That's, I guess that's yeah. pretty, pretty that, I feel the same reward as myself every time I deliver that. So cool. Uh, Kevin, where, final question, where can our audience get in touch with you? How can they learn more about what you're working on or if they just want to say hi? Sure. So, uh, certainly you can email me, uh, Kevin at growthstackinc.com. Um, feel free to visit our website, growthstackinc.com. Um, it's really easy to find me on Skype. Actually. Uh, I always kind of have Skype running in the background. I, I was, I was not an early adopter on Slack. I still use it, but not, mm-hmm. um, no, but really a very easy way to ping me is just, you know, find me on Skype anytime for almost any time day or night. Okay, okay. awesome. <laughs> so uh, my Skype ID is kevin.peterson90, okay. nine zero. Um, Peterson is S-E-N. Um, those are probably the two easiest ways to uh, to reach me. And uh, and certainly, uh, you know, don't be shy. I, I love talking with uh, fellow entrepreneurs and business owners. Awesome. So we'll put a link to all those uh, ways to contact you in the show notes. So thank you so much for jumping on, Kevin. Always nice chatting with you as usual. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. 
Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.